this morning. Um, I just want to say one thing that uh, I really love it when um, Marissa takes off her shoes when she leads us um, in the morning in worship. Um, you might have noticed that, but you know, when, when God, um, when Moses was before the burning bush, God said to Moses, Moses, you are standing on holy ground, take off your sandals. And there is this holy ground that we are standing on in this sacred space that we enter into, and, and Marissa brings that out. Um, but I will spare you my bare feet this morning, um, nonetheless. But anyway, um, this morning we begin a new series of messages for the season of Lent. We're going to be looking at one passage each week, and each of these passages are, um, are helpful for us in preparing us in our lives and our hearts for Easter celebration. Um, and each week there will be a different element that will be highlighted, an earthly element from the text that uh, helps to sort of draw out the theme of the text. And so this morning we're, we're uh, going to look at the wilderness as Jesus is in the wilderness. And in the coming weeks we'll look at things like water when Jesus was with a Samaritan woman at the well. Um, mud when Jesus heals a blind man. A cave when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And other elements that will be highlighted each week. And so today we begin with the wilderness. And the wilderness in the spiritual life is a really important theme because it's in the wilderness when we are stripped of all of our attachments. And we are stripped of our attachments in order to be attached to nothing other than the love of God in Jesus Christ. And it's in the wilderness that we come to discover that truth of the sustaining love of God. And it's in the wilderness that we come to discover our true selves. And so today we look at the story when Jesus was sent into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit when he was tempted by the devil. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Listen to the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command the angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious God, we pray that your Holy Spirit will fall afresh upon us this morning. 
and that as we come to place our lives here in front of your open word, we pray that your spirit will also speak to us in the deepest and most protected corners of our hearts, that we might know more truly and more securely who we are and whose we are and how to live accordingly. So speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was having breakfast um, a couple of years ago with uh, a good friend of mine who's been kind of down on his luck financially. He's been working the night shift at the hospital, basically cleaning bedpans, trying to raise his daughters. And uh, we would have breakfast together once a month or so, and, and on one particular morning, uh, we were having breakfast burritos, and um, Johnny told me that, that he had been playing the lottery every week for the past year. Now, I was really surprised by this, so I, I kind of started asking him questions, like, like, what do you mean you're playing the lottery? That's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But even more than that, I didn't even know how to play the lottery, so I started asking him questions, like, like, what do you mean you play the lottery? Do you just go into a liquor store and, and like buy a lottery ticket? How does it work? Like, there's all these different signs and things, and what, what is it? And so he started to explain it to me. He talked about, well, they're, they're, this is the California lottery, and so there's the Mega Millions, and then there's the Powerball, and then he started to tell me about the people recently who won the Mega Millions and the people who won the Powerball, and he said, you know, the, the next draw, uh, the next winner is going to win $98 million. Of course, 75% of that will probably go to Uncle Sam, but nevertheless, $98 million is the next winner, and, and so as he was telling this to me, as he was describing, by the end of the conversation, I had shifted from being, this is the dumbest thing in the world, to maybe I should go and buy a lottery ticket. And I started to think about it, and I found that I was actually tempted to buy a lottery ticket. Of course, I didn't, but I was tempted. What does it mean to be tempted? When the kids were about to do their homework on the kitchen counter the other day, Mom said to them, before you guys sit down to do your homework, make sure you put your phones away because I don't want you to be tempted by distractions. But what does it mean to be tempted? Just this past week, I came into my office and I found on my desk at 9 o'clock in the morning this big um, pillowcase full of all kinds of candy. Somebody was feeling bad for my seventh grade Halloween experience that I talked about a few weeks ago when Cyrus robbed me. Yeah, I'm sure it was definitely not John Melhoff um, who had never done any pranks or anything like this. But So I opened the, the bag and I, it was nine o'clock in the morning and there was all this candy. And I got to tell you, I was tempted to dig into the candy. But I knew that if I ate some, the rest of the day would be extremely difficult for me. But I was tempted. What does it mean to be tempted? Christian scholar Tom Long, he says this, most of us think that if there is one thing we know about in life, it's temptation. If there's one theological word that does not need to be rescued from abstraction, that, that connects firmly and vividly to our everyday lives and our everyday experiences, it is temptation. We face temptation all the time. It, it sort of hangs in our environment like the coronavirus, always trying to break down our resistance. We're tempted to eat too much ice cream. 
We're tempted to copy our friend's homework. We're tempted to cheat on our taxes. We're tempted to gossip about a neighbor, to lie on our way out of trouble. You name it, we've experienced it. We're constantly being tempted to do what we shouldn't. When it comes to temptation, we don't need any instruction about it. We know all about temptation. Thank you very much. But I wonder about that. In our passage today from Matthew chapter 4, this is a story about the nature of human temptation, both Jesus' temptation and ours, and it sheds a really surprising light on what temptation really is and what it is not. I remember being a, a new follower of Jesus, a young Christian as a teenager, and I, I had kind of just made a decision to follow Christ, and I was all excited about my newfound faith, and I got really involved in the youth group, and there were a, um, a few things I remember from that youth group experience. I remember going on trips to Mexico. I remember pr praying with the kids on Wednesday nights and singing songs and shoving our faces with marshmallows, playing Chubby Bunny. Fortunately, we all lived through that experience, um, and I don't remember a whole lot of what our youth pastor taught us um, as far as the content goes, but I do remember one thing that he said about the nature of temptation. When we were teenagers, we would always want to talk to our youth pastor about temptation. And this is what he said. He said, a person's character is determined by what you do when no one is watching. Yikes. And then he said, but God is always watching. Now, I was kind of afraid about this. I didn't really like it very much, and I've got a, a few theological problems with the idea of God watching from a distance um, far away. But he was on to something about the nature of Christian wisdom, namely this. When you take away the fear of punishment for doing wrong, and you take away the desire of praise for doing something good, in other words, no one will ever find out, what you do in life grows out of who you understand yourself to be. In other words, my youth pastor was getting really close to a profound biblical insight that living the Christian life grows out of embracing our baptismal identity, our Christian identity. The decisions we make in life are a product of who we understand ourselves to be. Now, in that light, doesn't that make temptation or our view of temptation seem a little small or, or a little shallow? Oftentimes, we think of temptation as simply the burning desire to do something that we really shouldn't do, right? Just one more cigarette, one more fling, one more drink, one more juicy rumor. We just really have this desire to do something that we know we shouldn't do. But the deepest temptation isn't the desire to do what we know we shouldn't do, to misbehave, but to compromise our baptismal identity, to be who we're not called to be. This is the message of the story of Jesus' temptation. Do you notice the devil isn't tempting Jesus to do anything inherently bad? He's not tempting Jesus to steal a wallet or to, to cheat on his taxes or to pick a fight with his neighbor. It's deeper than that. The devil is tempting Jesus to ignore his baptism, to deny who he is, to forget that he is the beloved child of the Father who is so pleased with him. You see, right before, this fascinating about the Gospel of Matthew, it's the most Jewish of the four Gospels, and right before 
uh, actually in the beginning there's the genealogy and Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah who would be the new Moses, right? And so after the genealogy and the birth narratives, there is the baptism of Jesus, which comes right before our text of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So immediately prior to him being driven out into the wilderness, Jesus left Galilee and met up with John the Baptist who was baptizing people in the Jordan River. And he said to John, I want to be baptized. And John said, why should we baptize you? You're the Messiah. You don't need to be baptized. This is a baptism of repentance. But Jesus insisted, and John consented, and, and the reason Jesus insisted is because he wanted to identify with us and with our need to be baptized and our need for the grace of God in our lives. And so in the waters of the baptism, Jesus goes down and, it's, and he comes up and it says beyond our comprehension that the heavens opened and, and a dove came upon Jesus and a voice of the Father said, this is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Jesus had done, hasn't really done anything pleasurable up until that point. He hadn't done any miracles or any teachings. No, this was his God-given identity. I am pleased with him because he's my son, not because of anything he's done, not because of anything he hasn't done, simply because he is my son. And suddenly in that moment, Jesus knows. He knows who he is, and he knows whose he is. He knows he's God's son. In the waters of baptism, God has given him his full identity. And in, that, in our passage for today, now he has the opportunity, first chance, to live in baptism. Just as Jesus identifies, just as we identify with Jesus in his baptism, Jesus identifies with us in our baptism, or maybe it's vice versa. When Jesus is baptized, he takes on our identity and our need for grace and mercy. But when we are baptized, we take on Jesus' identity. And so when we come out of the waters of our baptism, we are given the promise of new life. The old life has gone. Everything has been made new. Now clothe yourselves, Paul says, with compassion, kindness, humility, and gentleness. The rest of our lives is all about learning to live into our identity, to take off the old self and to be clothed with the new self. In the mystery of our baptism, we are given the name Christian, which means little Christ. You remember that worship him, I will change your name. What? Alright. Back to the handheld. Um, so the rest of your life is about learning to live into this new identity. I find it interesting that the very first way God helps Jesus live into this identity is by leading him into the wilderness to be tempted. Any sensible person might think that this is probably not the best way to begin the new identity, right? Now that you've been baptized, we're going to shove you into the wilderness and put you to the test, right? But Jesus was God's son, and as a first act of understanding his identity as such, he trusted God. And he followed the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. He followed that voice. 
You know, if there's a word to describe what we've gone through in the last year as Christians in this pandemic, it would be the word wilderness. We've been stripped of so many things that we've been attached to, and, and we've been put to the test to determine who it is that, do we worship worship or do we worship God? I mean, that's one test, and, and we, you've passed that test because you've made this, uh, you've adapted but man, there have been so many tests of our identity as Christians during this past year. Like any good Jew, Jesus prepared himself for this wilderness, for this experience, by fasting. He fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights as an act of devotion. The number 40, as you know, connects with a long line of God's chosen people. Noah, 40 days in the water. Moses, David, the Israelites in the wilderness. Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the new Moses. Just as Moses led the Israelites out of the bondage of slavery through the wilderness to the promised land into freedom, so Jesus leads us out of the bondage of our own sin and death and destruction through the wilderness of learning to embrace our new identity to the promise of eternal salvation. Jesus is the new Moses. And so the text tells us that after 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was famished. No surprise there. And it was in that place of hunger and exhaustion that the devil tempts Jesus to be someone else. Did you notice how he begins? If you are the son of God. It's not a direct attack. He could have said, you're not the son of God. But the devil is known for being crafty. And it's so much better to generate self-doubt because self-doubt is the virus that eats away at our identity. If you are the son of God. I remember a pastor a, a long time ago um, telling, talking about this and telling a story. It was more of a confession he was talking about a time when he got into a very heated argument with his daughter for something that she did. And he said to her, if you are my daughter, you better. And in doing that, he generated self-doubt in her daughter's identity, in her daughter's self-understanding as being flesh and blood of her father. Our words are powerful. Everything in the early chapters of Matthew, from the genealogy that begins in the gospel to the accounts of Jesus' baptism, it's all intended to make the point that Jesus has been given a narrative to follow, a storied identity. And it's the narrative of God's salvation. And the devil wants, essentially, the devil wants him to change the script, to live according to a different story. And notice that in response to each temptation, Jesus doesn't respond with some skillful counter-argument or a theological treatise. What does he do? He simply cites the text. He cites the story that is his story each time from the book of Deuteronomy. Turn these stones into bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He knows the story. He, it's, this, these are the stories that he was taught growing up as a child. They're part of his identity. And so when there is a, a temptation, he's got the story fresh on his mind. 
to, to cite it. He won't live a narrative other than the one he's be, been given. He remembers his baptism. He knows who he is. He's the beloved son of God. And so the first temptation, let's just kind of look briefly at each of these. The first temptation to turn stones into bread is the temptation to indulge. The temptation to be indulgent. It's to say, I, I, if I'm going to survive in this world, in this wilderness, I better take control. If I feel hungry, I can eat as much as I want. If I want something in life, I might as well just go out and get it. But Jesus remembers that he's part of a people who, who lived for 40 years in a wilderness. And they wanted to go back and return back to slavery, imagining something that wasn't real, like steak and meat and all these good things. And what did God do? God said, okay, I will take care of you. I will give you manna. This is sort of amazing and mysterious food that God would provide for them to nourish them. I've never had manna before. I've heard it maybe it tastes like grits. I've never even had grits before, so I have no idea what manna tastes like. But I heard it doesn't taste very good, but it sustained them. And the thing about manna is that you couldn't store it up. And they wanted to hoard it, but it wouldn't work. It would only last for a day. And so each day they would have to trust in the provision of God. Jesus knows that God is the one who provides, and he's going to live according to that narrative. Sometimes we find ourselves wanting to indulge in our own lives, too, we want more, 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 more stuff, more, uh, more Facebook, more Netflix, more money, more power, more, 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 more food. We think about um, a Thanksgiving meal when there's this wonderful bounty of food. And what do we do? We starve ourselves all morning so that we can satiate ourselves and stuff ourselves with this food. And, all of, of course, all it does is it makes us feel sick. And the only thing we can do afterwards is to take a nap. Um, this is not our story. This isn't Jesus' story to stuff ourselves. It is to rely on the provision of God who provides for us. The second temptation, to dive off the pinnacle of the temple in order for the angels to bear him up, to save him from dashing into the rocks, I would suggest it's, is the temptation to be certain. The temptation to be certain. You know in your depths that you're the son of God, so why not prove it? Just have God prove this to you. I mean, he sent you out here in the wilderness. You know, if you jump out, he'll save you. Why not be certain about it? Right? We have this temptation towards certainty. But Jesus knows that he's part of a story where the people of God live by faith, not by sight. This goes all the way back to Abraham and, and throughout the entire narrative. This is not his story. We are called to place our trust in a God we cannot see. We live by faith, not by certainty. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is not certainty, it's trust. The third temptation to take control of all the kingdoms of the world, of course, is the temptation to be powerful. We all face this one from time to time, uh, but Jesus knew that his Father is all-powerful and that whatever power he would ever need would be given to him whenever he needed it by the Father. So he wouldn't have to grab for power that wasn't given to him. Sometimes we feel powerless in our lives. 
and our egos tempt us to grab for power that isn't ours. We push someone down in order to get ahead. Or we cheat to gain more power. This quest for power is not ours. It's not our story. And when we, when we pursue that, we're, we're living a, a different narrative. We like to influence and to lead others. But Henry Nouwen says that to, uh, to resist the temptation to power is to make the shift from leading to being led. Of course, this is perfect for pastors, right? Because we're kind of leaders and we like to lead people and, and influence and it helps us feel useful and relevant. But Jesus chose to be led by the Father and to follow the Spirit's voice wherever the Father would send him, even to the cross. If we don't surrender our power to the greater power of God, we will never find the freedom and the liberation that we desire. But when we shift from leading to being led, then we assume the humble posture of, of being like beggars who are simply showing other beggars where to find bread. So these three temptations, to be indulgent, to be certain, to be powerful, they're temptations we all face as well, but because we belong to Jesus Christ, we too have been uh, given a part in the story, a role to play within the narrative of God's redemption. We've been called, we've been called in our baptism to be God's beloved children. It's our baptismal identity to be people who sow love where there is hatred, hope where there is despair, and faith where there is doubt. And because we're called, we're also tempted. We're tempted to change the script, tempted to live out another story, tempted to be someone other than who God has called us to be. In the waters of your baptism, God says to you the same thing he says to Jesus. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are the beloved, and with you I am well pleased. There's nothing you can do to earn that. There's nothing you can do that would take that away. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with who God is. To yield temptation is far more, to yield to temptation is far more serious than simply committing some transgression. To yield to temptation is to say, I'm not a child of God, and I want, and I'm not going to take my part in God's drama of redemption. You might remember that during the long struggle of apartheid in South Africa, apartheid means separate or to separate, where it was the segregation of white and black South Africans, and the, the white Dutch South Africans were uh, in power. And so it was segregation, but it led, of course, to injustice and the slaughtering of millions of black bodies during that time. And there was one person who was one of the most respected voices for racial harmony in apart during that apartheid era was uh, a bishop by the name of Desmond Tutu. You've heard of Bishop Desmond Tutu. He developed a, a kind of theology called Ubuntu theology, which simply means I am because we are. And he tried to use that theology to, to bring reconciliation and justice and harmony to, um, to South Africa during that time. But even Tutu's closest friends and colleagues got upset with him because he was, they thought that he was too 
moderate, and he had too much tolerance. They wished that he would have been more aggressive with his opponents. After all, there were, you know, lives at stake. And so one of them said this. At his age, referring to Tutu, Desmond Tutu, said this. At his age, you'd think he would have learned to hate a little more. But there is this problem with Tutu. He believes literally in the gospel. Isn't that interesting? What, what is he saying? In effect, what he was saying was that Tutu knew who he was. He remembered his baptism. He knows his story, and he's not going to change the script. As the old pietist used to say, to be baptized means to perform your life for an audience of one. And so like Jesus, we who are part of the church have been baptized, and the words have been said to us, you're the beloved child, daughter, and son of God. And like Jesus, we've been given our role, our part to play. Go out into the world in peace and love. Have courage. Proclaim the good news. Hold on to what is good. Return no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. This is our charge. This is our story. This is our identity. This is what we're called, how we are called to go and live. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. This is your truth. Any temptation is simply a temptation to live according to another story. So remember your story. Remember your baptism. Remember that you, like Jesus, are the beloved of God. God, we thank you for Jesus, not only his example, but his sacrifice. We thank you that we are given a new identity in him. So help us to know who we are and whose we are. Help us to live in the story. And as we do, may we know that, that this is our truth and this is authentic. This is who we are. We thank you and we praise you. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.